become better friends with people that you like on Twitter. So if you have been following somebody for a while and have had some nice interactions, I think you should DM them and give them your phone number and be like, let's do a social call. Take it to the next level somehow. Hey, everybody. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Indie Rails. Today, we're thrilled to have special guest Ben Ornstein. Ben has been a prominent figure in the Rails community. He's been a developer, podcaster, speaker, educator, a Vim master, a refactoring guru, a product maker, and thought leader. But in his most recent season, he's morphed into an entrepreneur and the CEO of Tuple, the premier remote programming app. And we've been fortunate enough, he's been sharing his learnings along the way. In this episode, we hope to discuss Ben's journey into and out of the Rails world, his insights on building and growing businesses, and his advice for anyone looking to create their own path. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks very much. Stoked to be here. Yeah, great to have you. So, Ben, I was thinking, I listened to one of your most recent versions of Hackers Inc., and you started off by talking about burpees and how it's this like unassuming exercise movement, right? You just get down on the floor and get back up and do it once is not that hard, but you do it many times in a row. It's very difficult. And I got a kick out of that. We started implementing burpees as discipline for our kids. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh man. But I enjoyed you sharing that and you talking about your five minute workout, but sort of got to thinking about, I feel like sometimes business is kind of like burpees in that it's simple that, oh, you find service or a product that's, that people want. You put a price tag on it. You sell it for a little bit higher than what it costs you to make it. And that's a business, right? But a little unassuming if you just think it, about it that way. Does that strike a nerve with you? The part about business being surprisingly hard, I would say, yeah, that's, that's true. I was thinking today, it's crazy hard to make good software. I feel like if you can manage to make really good software, building a business is also hard and is a separate skill. But if you can at least start with that, you're on track. You have a chance. But yeah, they're both tricky. Can you take us to... I think a lot of people know where you came from, the context of you being at ThoughtBot. And what I want to double click on a little bit is what... I don't know where in that stage you became a developer at ThoughtBot to becoming someone who wanted to go a little bit outside that box with speaking, with podcasting, with making products. When did that nerve start to strike and how did you take those steps? I think it was fairly early on that it, I had that impulse. Once I started feeling like I had accumulated enough knowledge that there were people that could be helped because they were a little bit behind me, I think that impulse started to happen. I'm having trouble thinking of instances of wanting to teach people before that. So I think it may have been that like the first time was around programming. Was that something you think that was primarily driven by the culture at ThoughtBot? Or was it something more that you cared about personally? Culture was part of it. There definitely isn't a teaching culture at ThoughtBot for sure. And maybe that's sort of what helped awaken it. But my feels deeper than that to me. I don't feel like I just like got into it purely because of the culture. Because once I started doing it, I got so much joy from it that I feel like there was a part of my brain that wanted to do this in a deep way. And so it really helped. Like Being at stand-up, someone would share something they learned and someone would almost invariably be like, you should blog that. And that's just like a great thing to have in your culture and that impulse to teach and give back. And so, yeah, that's, I hadn't considered it until now, but it might be that's like what sort of lit the wick on that thing for me. And then I discovered that, man, I just love this. I think there's like an interesting intellectual challenge in 
figuring out how to convey something well to someone, particularly live. If I can get a sense of someone and what they know already and what's going to make sense to them and can figure out a way to teach them something such that they get it kind of quickly, it's not too bumpy. I find that just a really interesting kind of multidimensional problem that stimulates my brain in a similar way to programming. There's also like an improvisational aspect to the live part of that, which is not just like constructing it on your own in any amount of time that you have, but in that interactive way, maybe. Yeah, I think that's probably part of it. It's a bit of a, like a live performance. That seems to be something you care about, you like doing. Definitely. Yeah. I have been into live performance from before programming. And so maybe it was just that I discovered, like, oh, you can give conference talks and they feel kind of like performance, like they are performances. They felt like yeah. the performances I was used to, which was like more musical in nature. But yeah, the, I think the real time aspect is part of what makes it interesting. It's like reading the body language and reading their reactions and are they getting it? Is this working? Do I need a different tack? So speaking on that, you sort of made a name for yourself I think, doing the live coding, the live performance on stage. Did you come up with that idea and say, this is what I'm going to do? Or did it just sort of happen organically? I don't remember where the inspiration came from that for sure. I know that I eventually developed this philosophy, which is that whenever possible, doing something live for your audience is better than telling them about it. If I write code for you live, it's interesting in the way that a trapeze act is interesting because you can sort of see the risk that is there. And it makes you a little bit nervous as an audience member, which I think is a good thing. And also, it is a live performance that takes advantage of the live nature of it, where the audience can interact with me and I can take their suggestions and we're sort of pair programming together, as opposed to a talk that is a bunch of slides where it's harder to change that on the fly. Like You could be like, they're not getting it. This isn't working, but your slides are your slides. Or like, this is really interesting. I want to spend more time here. But you can kind of do that, but maybe not. And so what came first? But I would say that talk probably thoroughly converted me into a proponent of live coding. I think it tends to be... If you can pull it off, it tends to lead to a more entertaining talk. That makes me want to try that sometime. (laughs) I'm still a little bit scared of that, but yeah. Yeah, That's a good thing though. A little bit of fear is a pretty good clue, I think, that it might be worth giving a shot. It's exhilarating, you know? When you're done, you're like, it's, you know, it's like finishing a recital or you know, right. finishing a real performance. Yeah, that good relief. Yep. And you're not lip singing. Right. <laughs> yeah. I've never given a conference talk, but your live programming performances, they inspire me. I've given several like meetup talks and presentations, and, you know, I've done some live coding and testing, and it was fun. That's kind of a nice warm up if you're considering conference speaking, but are intimidated by the formality or the size of it. Like every meetup organizer, I should say, is looking for talks. It's one of the easiest pitches in the world of, hey, can I give a 10-minute talk on this thing that's relevant to the audience? Every organizer will say yes to that. And if they don't have a slot for you this month, they do next month. Right. Totally. It's an endless problem. Yeah. And then so maybe, yeah, giving it to 20 people is, you know, a nicer way to get in there. You were doing conferences, you were doing sort of podcasts, but then also within ThoughtBot, you guys started, and I may not be clear on this, but... You were starting products and services inside of ThoughtBot, right? That's right. How did that come about? Was it there before you came along or did you sort of initiate that? No, it was there before I joined. When I got to ThoughtBot, they already had a paid product that was pretty successful. It was called Hoptoad when I got there. Was it Hoptoad? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Hoptoad. And then it, became, it got renamed to Airbreak. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's been so long. I'm not... <laughs> I'm like fuzzy now. I remember it was doing like real revenue. I think it was maybe doing 30 grand a month or something. I think it was tens of thousands in revenue. And it was an error reporting service. There was already a desire to be a consulting company that made products. Partly for practice, partly because we had ideas. 
Partly because it's nice to diversify your revenue streams. And when you've got available capacity for consultants that may right. not be farmed out to particular clients, what do you do with them? Yeah. I'd say at least on paper, it feels like it's like a great fit. I think in practice is probably hard. I wonder how often a great product comes out of a consultancy. Like when it's not your main thing, it's kind of hard to give it the love it really deserves. And it's always more profitable to pull someone off that and put them on a client project mm -hmm. in the short term. So it requires some real long-term focus. I was hearing someone say recently that can also cause problems with teammates who are frustrated they can't be on the product or the whatever the cool thing is. I don't get to be working on that. I got to do this other thing that's annoying or boring or something. Yeah. If I were going to try to start a successful product, I wouldn't want to start a consultancy first if I could at all avoid it. Interesting. I'm coming around to this philosophy, which is beware of saying, what I really want to do is X. But first, I have to do Y and then I'm going to do X. I'm increasingly skeptical of that approach. And I would say at this point, my default heuristic is you should just delete Y and go right to X and die trying. I totally agree. In college, I think my senior year, I took a screenwriting class. It was a small class. One of the other people in the class said, he wanted to go to Hollywood and become a screenwriter. But first, he was going to get a degree in finance and go make a bunch of money and then do that. I knew right then, like, he's never moving to LA. He's never going to Hollywood. That was just like not going to be the thing, which is totally fine. It's just not being quite honest with yourself, I think, or setting yourself up for failure to never get what you actually wanted. Yeah. And then it's, you're not really doing it. You're like a little too afraid or you're doubting yourself too much or you think you need a credential or you think you need some permission or some experience. Or it's, eh, is that really true? Or could you just go straight at this and increase your chances of success? So did you follow your own advice or maybe you didn't have that advice then, but going back to ThoughtBot again, when did you start thinking about breaking out on your own? And then was the thought to maybe start a side project first and then when it gets big enough, I'll jump ship? So when I joined ThoughtBot, I think I already had in my head that I would want to start a product someday. But I didn't know what it was. And I didn't have the co-founders that I wanted. Mm. Or I didn't have any co-founders. Was that a goal to have co-founders? Yes. Yeah. I did try going out on my own for a little bit. And it was miserable. And it kind of worked from a business. Like The first thing I did was like make a course. Like I made a course on writing Rails applications. And I think that course has done like 60 to 70,000 in revenue. And it did like the first 40 or so pretty fast, like the first month. And so I was like, okay, I know I can make a course. If I keep making courses, I can make a living here. But just very quickly, I was like, I hate being alone. I hate working by myself. So that was not great. Were you still at ThoughtBot then when you made the course? I had left ThoughtBot by that point. Okay. okay. So I was at ThoughtBot for, I think it was seven years. And I ended up like running products, like SaaS products at ThoughtBot. And so I had some experience with this and I was like, yep, this is right. This is what I want to do. And I reached a point where I felt like I had gotten what I wanted out of that experience at that company and wanted to try doing things myself. And so I tried to go off on my own at first, didn't go that well. And then within a few months of that, I had actually started a tuple with a couple of co-founders. And that was the thing I needed was the co-founders and a better idea and yeah, and some good luck and that sort of thing. Did you have co-founders before the idea or idea first? So what happened was... I knew I wanted to start something. I would go to my good friend Joel's house. And Joel was also a programmer working somewhere else. And I would go with my list of business ideas. And I would just like read down the list. I still have this list. And I, I add to it all the time because it's just fun. But I think at the time, there's probably 30 ideas or something. And I remember I went over there one time and I spent the evening just kind of like going through ideas. And we got through 12 of them. And none of them were hits. And then I went back 
And I did a few more and I pitched him on the idea for Tuple. And that was the one that we were like, he was like, you know, that sounds interesting. And that was the one that got us excited. And as we explored the idea more, we got more and more confident about it. And then we had actually decided we had a meeting at a coffee shop and we're like, are we like really doing this? What are the tricky things? Like had some real talk and we decided yes. And then someone that Joel had hired at his previous startup, I reached out to him and said, Hey, I just quit my job. What are you up to right now? And that person, Spencer, who ended up being our third co-founder because Joel sort of made the pitch. He said, this is the best person we hired at my last company. He's available. I think he would really up our chances of success. We should add him to the team. And I met him and like we were all aligned philosophically on what we were trying to do with this experience. And so we did it. I don't want to keep harping on this, but going back to ThoughtBot, I think this is one of the hardest decisions like entrepreneurs or people who are want to start a business or a product have to make is, and what's that analogy that one of the most addicting things in the world is a monthly paycheck? And like having to make that decision to stop what you're doing and leave. And you didn't even really know what you were doing at that point. You just knew you wanted to do something. How did you reconcile that? Reconcile what? Being able to stop working. Did you say, okay, I have enough income or runway for six months. I'm going to try this out. I had saved a lot at that point. I think I had two years of runway basically at that point. And so... Yeah, I had no dependence and I was a pretty good saver. And so I was mostly just socking money away while I was making a developer salary. I wasn't super frugal, but I was frugal enough that I could do this. And so that plus just knowing my ability to get hired, like the developer labor market, I was not at all concerned about re-entry into the employment world if I needed it. The biggest risk to me felt like when I first left was like, I don't have co-founder. wasn't sure what I was going to do. That felt like the risky part, not like I might be destitute. Were there any other things that you were looking for to determine if you were actually ready? Skills that you felt like you needed or things that you needed to practice at? So while I was at ThoughtBot, I launched a couple paid products that were so almost like weekend projects to get off the ground. So I would go do these things called Codecations. We called them Codecations with my friend Chris Hunt, which is a friend I met through the conference speaking circuit. And we would go somewhere cool for three or four nights and we would hack on a project. And two of those turned into very small SaaS apps. And that was where I sort of got my first taste of getting a little bit of recurring revenue, onboarding customers manually, seeing what I learned from that, like understanding how you like how do you build a product that people will pay for, you know, and then also just like the physical motions like integrating with Stripe, building user management, that sort of thing. So I had kind of somewhat intentionally like mostly because it interested me made a couple of paid products already. And so I felt like... And learned a bunch each time, even though they never got to that much revenue, you know, hundreds a month, not thousands a month. I still felt like I had gotten a bunch of useful knowledge out of that. Yeah. You'd gone through the motions. You had even made money with this. Like All the steps had been... You'd gone through. It wasn't like a new thing, just maybe at a different level. Totally. Yeah. And I'm glad I did that. And then also getting to run products at ThoughtBot was another thing. Like There I was working on products that were making thousands a month. Started like a, an education division inside ThoughtBot that did well. So I had at this point like run a number of SaaS apps or a SaaS app like things and done a ton of software development. I had been sort of building for a long time towards this. I had sort of figured for a while running a SaaS business, running a software business feels like the right spot for me. I have the technical skills. I am like pretty good at marketing and product development. And like I had like a, the right sort of combination of things. I didn't appeal a lot. And so I was like, it seems like my sweet spot is right here. I think I'm going to really like that intersection of like business and code. That just sounded like the two really fascinating topics and like the, the product of them sounded great to me. And it was really cool that 
you're like making a product for your tribe, your people that you are already familiar with, the people that followed you and the people that, that you knew well. Totally. Yeah. So to my current company, being a remote pairing app is sold to other developers, which first of all, telling the developers is great. Best bug reports in the game. <laughs> it's awesome. And they understand technical complexity and you know issues. And like, I really love selling to developers. And their companies are like comparatively rich and spend a lot on tools. And developers have a lot of political sway within the company. There's just a lot of great reasons to, to make up something for developers. I'm into it. And we're still mad that Screen Heroes was taken away. So it's like... Exactly. You've got like that collective hatred or anger about this thing. <laughs> yes, totally. Yeah, we picked up a banner, which is like... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Early on. And that helped. That was like very helpful early positioning. So the choice of Tuple was definitely partly motivated because it was to an audience that I had already built. Like when we started the company, I probably had like 7,000 Twitter followers and a few thousand people on a mailing list and just like a reputation in the industry. And so I figured if I make it something for these people, they're going to assume it's like default okay, at least, you know, worth checking out because I put some good work out there. I had done a lot of talks at that point. I mean, like dozens of conference talks. Had lots of you know YouTube videos, lots of views. So I, I had a bit of reputation that I knew I could sort of leverage, and I would say it played into the decision. But I, I think I actually undervalued that, even though like it was something we cared about. I don't think I appreciated the degree to which it would make getting off the ground easy. We had like thousands of people on our waiting list so fast because I had an existing audience to sell it to, and because that audience already trusted me. I was just. Don't think I appreciated the degree to which I was starting with a big advantage. And I think were I to start something new in the future, picking a different market would be, I would go into it with eyes wide open. Like, this is a big cost I'm incurring by not selling something to my existing audience. Yeah, like starting all over again. And you just heard about your triggers feature in Tuple. And that sounds really cool that you get to build features that are sort of geared towards power users and which, you know, all developers consider themselves power users. I mean, it's cool having a technical audience for a bunch of reasons. But yeah, one of them is that like they appreciate powerful things. They care about their tools. The nice thing about developers. Yeah. And are down to, I think, especially appreciate not being talked down to. So when like we talk about like bugs, we'll often include like a, some like a lot of low level detail on like what happened or new features. I sort of encourage people who are writing for on behalf of the company and public to be technical and be cool with sharing lots of little nerdy facts in there. If I go back and think about like that list of business ideas that you had, you're like thinking down through. And like, for me, I've been a Rails developer for 15 years. If I'm looking at that list, if it's not a Rails app, I'd be scared to try it. Thinking about Tuple, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this Rails developer is going to build like these native apps, you know, like desktops. Yeah. Desktop software. Whoa. That I never would Personally, I would have never picked that. Did you have experience with that or what gave you the confidence that you could go into? You know, I don't know if what other things that you've built, you know, outside of the Rails community, what made you say, oh yeah, I can do that. Or I think I'm pretty confident about that. Or... That was like the biggest worry, actually. So I did a lot of pre-sales of Tuple where I like convinced people to pay us money upfront before we had it for annual plans to validate that people cared about this kind of software and actually had a problem here. Yeah. And that worked. I sold like tens of thousands of dollars of tuple presales of vaporware. And so I was like, okay, I'm pretty confident this is a real problem and we can make money if we can solve it. I was like, can I build the thing I'm describing to people? And that was the biggest thing. I feel like a lot of the times, I would imagine that most companies have less technical risk and more like distribution risk or like building the right product kind of risk. And it felt like we had the opposite where it was like, I can sell this. 
people do want this. I don't know if we can build this. Like all three of us were basically just Rails developers, not just Rails developers. Rails of proud Rails developers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but did not have any desktop experience. And it, like after a few prototypes, it turned out to get the performance we wanted and the control we wanted, we were going to have to build this in C as a native real Mac OS desktop app. And the thing that this app was going to do was real time video, audio, screen share, data channels, content negotiation, dealing with firewalls, like dealing with connection, like all kinds of crazy stuff. And so at all, that was totally new to us. But fortunately, I have great co-founders. And so I sort of stayed focused on selling it and marketing it, talking about it, and then doing product management, like being the, owning the product itself. And Joel and Spencer made the rest of the technical stuff happen. And it worked. And Spencer, our CTO, deserves I mean, quite a bit of that credit. Joel contributed for sure, no doubt. Not, to, not talking down on Joel at all, but Spencer was really the one that went like, ham and you know just read all the books and went nuts hiring coaches and buying courses and becoming a legit C++ person. So you did majority of that I guess first version of it internally you didn't hire out you didn't have to go out and hire C++ developers to do it. No. We did all of it. We hired I mean Spencer had coaches along the <laughs> way and we tried to hire like we did some no, not really. I don't think there was much consulting contribution to it. I think we wrote pretty much all of it. When you made that decision, when you guys made that decision, was there any fear in you? I think I can speak for a lot of other Rails developers that I used to do in my own work and managing a product. And I don't manage big teams or anything like that. I'm in the code a lot, writing the code. And I think at that point, you decided like you were going to have to manage the direction of the company and manage the marketing of the company and kind of step away from the code itself. How did that resonate with you, being a long-time developer? You know, it felt pretty okay, actually. So yeah, so I wrote a little bit of code at first. I helped write the Rails app because there's the installable desktop portion and there's the Rails backend that handles billing and originally handled like connecting and telling you who was online, had presence, basically. <laughs> yeah. I helped write the first versions of a lot of that code. But within, yeah, probably within four or five months, it was clear like three developers doing developing and no one doing sales and marketing is a classic way to fail as a indie developer kind of thing. And like I was the one with the audience, you know, like it was already working. Like I had people to talk to. I had, and I'm good at it. I know how to make a video. I know how to do a demo. I know how to present the company and make us seem kind of cool. And so it was a pretty natural thing. It was like, okay, I'm going to be the face of the company. Was it difficult to let go of not necessarily control, but like the, shift in how you thought about yourself and the level of involvement in that code base? Not really, actually. It wasn't too bad. Yeah, I felt okay about it. I had invested so much effort in being good at programming that to spend more time doing it would have been fine. But I was excited by the prospect of getting good at the other things. And I enjoy when I'm like fairly new to a thing and I want to learn it. Like That early phase of the learning curve is exciting to me. I still honestly kind of miss sort of the flow steady simplicity of programming where it's, I'm just trying to make this thing work. I'm just trying to make this test pass. Once I get rolling in programming, I find that I will hit flow state pretty fast and stay there for a long time. And there's not many things like that in the other things that I do for the company. Writing is the closest thing, but writing feels like a continual effort in a way that programming doesn't. I feel like that the boulder rolls down the hill for me with programming. I'm kind of always pushing it. Like I, maybe it's flat ground with writing. Like it'll keep going, but it's not easy. I got to keep it going. 
So I didn't struggle with the identity thing so much. And I mourn a little bit that the pleasure of the programming. But all in all, I'm pretty happy with the trade. So do you remember when you were starting, was the goal to keep Tuple small and just be like this bootstrap company that's like really profitable? Or did you guys have these big visions of taking on funding and grow into a super large company? What were your plans? No, our plans were always to stay small, to be bootstrapped and to be highly profitable. And that's still our plan. Well, that's still the mission. We're less small now. I think we're 11 people right now. But to me, that's still fairly small. And we still care a lot about profitability. And I guess we're sort of a little bit default skeptical of hiring to solve problems, as opposed to, you know, like hiring solves most problems kind of perspective. And so, yeah, like Joel and Spencer both worked or started venture-backed companies previously and were pretty turned off from the traditional venture world. Having seen what I'd seen, I'd worked for a number of venture-backed companies as a consultant at ThoughtBot and had just been sort of exposed to a lot of that. And so the three of us were all pre-aligned of just, no, we are not going to raise money for this thing. We want it to be profitable and small and very lifestyle sort of motivations. Is there any part of you, any fraction of you that since then has thought, boy, but it would have been nice to be able to do this that we couldn't? Not really. I don't really feel like we have felt revenue constrained very much. Mm -hmm. Where it's, oh, we're dying to hire somebody, but we just can't afford it. That sucks. Let's wait six months and see what happens. It's usually more like, we're dying to hire somebody, but we can't find that person. So for the most part, yeah, I haven't really had that feeling. Now, it could be if we had a whole a bank account full of a bunch of cash, we would have made other aggressive moves that we haven't even considered. And so I would have had like different ambitions and different desires would have come into my mind. But I haven't noticed the desires that were there that I couldn't afford most of the time. Constraints are good. Yeah. Well, I guess my point was actually that we're not constrained. You're not. I don't that. feel like we, we are constrained, of course. We can't just hire a million people. But could we hire three more people? Yeah, I think we could hire three more people. Do we have three people we want to hire? Not really. The constraint here for us, actually, is non-money most of the time, I would say. Ben, so you've talked to us a little bit about starting Tuple. Can you remember a point where you thought, this is going to work? This is actually going to work. We're starting a business and it's going to be successful. Was there ever like a, oh, we hit this certain milestone or? I guess I had sort of like cautious optimism most of the time, particularly with all the pre-sales that I was able to get. It felt like, yeah, this seems to be a thing. The signs looked positive to me. Yeah, it took us a while to get the first version created. I think it was 8 months from like breaking ground to our first like user actually using it, which was sort of like long enough to be like, this is sort of a long time. Like, it's a little <laughs> uncomfortable. I felt, yeah, like cautiously optimistic for a while. And then when we onboarded our first user and we're like, how's the latency? And he was like, it's like Screen Hero on a good day. Nice. <laughs> and we showed him like this part of the app that we had built that showed you connection health and like what your latency, what the RTT was and what the packet loss was. And he was like, just the fact that I'm seeing this shows me that you guys are focused on the right things. And I was like, okay, we might have it. Like we might be onto something. That was like the most noticeable, like, all right, like user number one is pretty stoked and is giving feedback. And that seems like, all right, I think we did it. And I can tell that probably just encouraged you all that much more to just go after it. Yeah, totally. It was water in the desert. So would you say that your growth was sort of gradual or did you ever, did you hit this big hump at some point? So we were doing well pretty quickly. I think we were adding 
a few thousand dollars in MRR a month within a couple months of launch. I was like, hey, this is nice. Like 2K, 3K, 4K, 5K. Like this is legit. Like adding that much each per month. And then COVID hit. So we launched the start of 2019. And yeah, we had about a year and change of like good growth. And then COVID hit and like we added something like 50,000 in MRR in a month or two. Oh, wow. Yeah, we had a couple months that were like tens of thousands in new MRR each month. And so the business like basically tripled or something by May or something, 20, May 2020. That was the inflection point for us. And then post that, our growth rate was pretty reliably more like 15K a month or something. So we just like kept growing at a new whole new clip than before. At that inflection point, at the beginning of COVID, were there any surprises in terms of challenges or new problems that you had to solve at that point in time that you hadn't seen before? I mean, there's one initial thing, which is that we had like done a pretty naive algorithm for updating presence, like who's online. And we sort of knew it was naive, and but we're like, we'll fix it later. Like it's inefficient, but we don't need to worry about it right now. And then that was like the thing that caused like everything to melt on the sort of day one of everyone went home. Wow. In particular, like Shopify is a big customer of ours. And they were already our biggest customer back then. And huh. I think they had 200 developers or something using Tuple maybe when this when the pandemic started. And they like sent everyone home pretty fast and said, use Tuple as your thing. <laughs> so they went from like, 200 to like, 2,000 users or something. Oh my word. They were a stress test of our system and we had some choke points. And so we had a day or so of very stressful downtime mitigation, or at least like, near downtime mitigation. It shuffled all the priorities really fast just for a short period of time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's nothing like people can't log in, people can't make calls, people can't see anyone online like to help set your priorities. There's nothing like a good incident to sort of <laughs> make clear what you need to do right now. Honestly, after that, I don't recall having that many infrastructure things. Like We were pretty good to go. And so it was more like, oh my God, this is exciting, kind of like in the midst of other, you know, very scary, very terrible times. It was like, oh my God, the business itself is doing amazing. And at least there's this. So it was a bright spot for us. But our, we were mostly focused on like, all right, let's try to be awesome. People are using us to do real work. Let's help keep people doing that work and just try to, I don't know, try to be good, try to hang on. Since we're all developers here, can you explain sort of at a high level how Tuple works as far as is a lot of the load on the client side or does a lot of this get bottlenecked through a server somewhere? Yeah. So most Tuple calls are peer-to-peer. Okay. That's what I was thinking. And just to make sure people have a model of what we're talking about, like Tuple is a remote pair programming tool, which you can think of kind of as like a fancy screen sharing tool with remote control. So we sort of looked at like Zoom screen sharing and said, you don't want to pair with this. Yeah, you can get it done, but it's clunky. Can we make a nicer version of this? And that's like the core of the business. That's like the whole value prop and has been and still is. And so there's a just installable desktop client, which is what you actually use. It does the like capturing of your screen and the and your webcam and sending it over the wire and all that. But Tuples is almost entirely peer-to-peer. So if you and I are pairing, our servers, it like helps broker an initial connection. And then we say, great, have a good time. And like your the data flows between the two of you and we don't even see it. And so fortunately, in terms of load, like we're still, I think on, yeah, there's not very much load for us is the upshot. So it's, you could probably say it's like very decentralized. There's not a bottleneck in a server farm somewhere. Yeah. Most of the <laughs> That's time. That's really cool. As you get into larger calls, you can't form a mesh efficiently. So if you have two users peer-to-peer, totally fine. If you have three users peer-to-peer, still works. Four users trying to send your data to all three other users and receive data from three other users starts to fall apart. 
So once you hit a certain number of call participants, we switch to a client server architecture, like a media server. So we people, everyone sends their data to one place and that handles like fanning it out and sending it to other people. So there does become a centralized bottlenecky kind of thing eventually. Was there a point where you realized that you did need maybe more deep knowledge of C++ or of the particular types of streaming challenges that you were facing and had to go outside the team to get that? I wouldn't say there was a particular point. We got to a point where we were basically Spencer, our CTO, was supporting this like really complicated app with a bunch of new technologies that he wasn't super familiar with. And it had been under development for long enough that we started to like detect that had started to like really accumulate. And we didn't have the knowledge on like what to do about that exactly. Like, how do you design a large C application and keep it maintainable? And so we did kind of get to the point where he was like, I do feel a little bit like I have painted myself into a corner and I don't really see the way out. And at the same time, like dealing with native Mac OS APIs is its own, a whole like separate paradigm. Yeah, it's also hard. And so, Fortunately, at the time, we found our first person that we hired, whose name was Mikey, who's still with us, which is great. And he is a macOS expert and C++ expert and was Spencer's first life preserver in a sea of doom, basically, (laughs) and was a sort of a huge contributor to us untangling that mess and having some redundancy and having somebody else in the trenches. We were always believers in pair programming, but seeing how impactful adding this person as a pairing buddy for Spencer was really kind of hammered at home. So Ben, you guys started with a Mac app and then you have a Linux app and I think you've started Windows. What was the decision with the Linux first versus Windows? Was Linux just a customer request or you knew you had an audience in that or how do you make that decision? We had a survey that we would send out to our customers, which is like, what other operating system would you want us to build a tuple client for? And I think I would usually send this in response to people asking us for different clients, or maybe we sent to everyone. I can't remember, but I do remember we accumulated data on this and people asking for Linux beat Windows like two or three to one. And so I was like, oh, interesting. I wouldn't have guessed that, but the demand from our customers, for whatever reason, seems to be much more about... Interesting. And so is that. And Spencer was like, I don't really want to make a Windows app, but I would like to make a Linux app. And it's okay. If that matters, you know, there's something to that. So yeah, probably those motivations together. How much more difficult or less difficult was it than making the Mac app? It's sort of hard to answer that. So we spent a lot of time on kind of this like refactor from hell, which was extracting a cross platform engine to handle the common things that each app needed to do, and then building a small to medium layer of OS-specific shims or whatever, adapters, I guess, to do the API, the platform-specific API calls. I mean, I think it was a solid year to do that. So once we had the cross-platform engine, the client came together reasonably quick. I mean, it's still a work in progress, and it's still a fighting for its life in the prioritization challenges of the world. But the initial like get us in a spot where we can do multi-platform was quite an effort. Was that a getting that core split out from the app and then sort of the wrapper piece? Was that a one big change over one version or was that gradual? I think it was gradual. I think we pulled in like pieces across it over the time. I didn't actively do it hands on keyboard, so I'm not totally sure. I mentioned the Hackers Inc. 
podcast earlier. And on that same episode, you were talking about marketing features to your current customers and how you were surprised that some of your customers don't know about some of the features that are already in your product. And that really resonated with me. One of the first jobs that I had was sales and marketing for a gas permeable contact lens company. And they've been making the same contact lens for 15 or 20 years. And so I was like, everybody knows about these things. They've been making them for 20 years. But the more I looked into it, the more I realized like you have to just continue marketing and saying some of the same things, maybe coming up with creative ways to say it. But yeah, I loved hearing you say that. And what are your thoughts on that? I'm sort of continually surprised by the efforts you need to go through to have people discover features. And maybe this is just like we're not that great at UX or like UI, I suppose. Like we need to get better at making a more discoverable UI. But I think this challenge actually just would remain. I don't know if there's any like fully solving this with just great UI. I think people seem to form a map of what your product can do and they don't really want to update the map. Our like most requested feature for a long time, like change, was like supporting more than three people on a call. And that was a huge lift as well. That was like another year, basically. <laughs> but we did it. And there are still people that are like, and like we've had it now for like probably two years, maybe longer. And there are still people that are like, oh yeah, I didn't know you could have more than three people. And it's wow. You <laughs> so, spent a year on that. <laughs> yeah. This is a thing that contributes to my feeling that there are no small features. It seems often like you've come up with a little idea. And, oh, this is like going to be so quick and so simple. And you forget there's not just the shipping of the feature, but there's also like educating the user, updating the docs, getting people to even know this is there, see, clicking that button or it's just... There's so much below the waterline of that feature iceberg. And one of them that I underestimated was like user education. Yeah, that resonates. So I'm more bullish now on features that people get value from automatically. Things you don't have to necessarily do anything to like use or to get, yeah, to appreciate. They don't have to go find it or turn it on. It's just you immediately get it. Yeah. Especially if it's almost like fully passive, like just reducing our latency. Mm. Or like finding a way to stream higher quality or to use less CPU to launch faster, that kind of thing. Oh, you don't have to do anything for this, but you'll just like the software more. You'll just have a better experience. I don't even have to tell you that we did it and it'll just be better. That makes me appreciate those kind of features more. It's interesting because so many clients that I work with or people that I talk to, they would rarely prioritize those kinds of features. The things like cut response times, Performance improvements, performance as a feature, even you though you can't yeah, make a shiny like, marketing page with that stuff, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, you can. Yeah. Now 50% faster. I, I don't know. Yeah, maybe you can, but that makes sense. I think you kind of need to care about this stuff culturally, I guess. I think you need to be a user of your product and you need to like also care about those details at a philosophical level, maybe. And if I had to guess, if you're outsourcing development of your product, maybe those are not like natural. Those don't seem like they overlap that much to me. I feel like you're probably a feature matrixy kind of product manager person, maybe, or like you want a thing that you can sell somebody with that's like more obvious or something. But that might just be like weird bias in my own head. Ben, stepping back and kind of thinking back to questions about your own career and thinking about you going from software developer into entrepreneur role and business owner role, that sort of thing. A couple of weeks ago, you had shared on Twitter that Adam Wathen had told you that you'd do a great job organizing a software business conference. And you mentioned Tyler Cohen's 
idea of high return activity of raising other people's aspirations by suggesting they'd be more ambitious than they might otherwise be. And I think of you as a pretty ambitious person. I was curious for you, like how much do you think your own ambitions have been encouraged or developed by people around you who have said, oh, you should do this or you would be good at this? How much of that do you think is just internal to who you are? This sounds like a little bit like self-congratulatory or something. It makes me suspicious of it. Like it makes me sound good. So like I doubt my <laughs> yeah. own answer, but I feel like that was already kind of there. I mean, I already wanted to start a company. I already wanted to live this kind of life. I think I'm like medium ambitious. Okay. I feel like it's kind of like wealth, which is there's going to be people that like just blow you away. Yeah. And so you think you've reached a certain milestone and you realize, wow, there's people that are just like a hundred times more ambitious than I am. I actually feel like my ambitions are a little bit more modest. I'm pretty happy running a small bootstrapped profitable software company. I would say like my desire to improve the world has gone up. I think for my like whatever my next thing is, it is more likely to include somewhat like of a more directly world benefiting thing, maybe. But I kind of feel like I'm like it's funny you like describe me as like very ambitious and like I don't know. My mental model of myself is kind of like semi ambitious, slightly slackery kind of person. He's being <laughs> modest. <laughs> I honestly know that really is sort of how I feel about myself. And like, I get that, like, I have accomplished some things, but once I accomplish those things, I don't know, I go to conferences and I meet other founders and like their businesses are a hundred times larger than ours. And okay, like, I guess I'm doing something pretty cool. Your peer group changes as you do stuff. And so it's, I don't know, like, it's, this is all a mess of kind of messy brain chemistry that's not that trustworthy. So I feel like I've hit my, to some extent, I think I already had this ambition. It was fanned as I met more people that had built software companies of some kind. And I was like, these guys aren't that smart. <laughs> yeah. I started going to like conferences and like meeting people. And I was like, all right, this person's business is doing two million a year. This is not like a hyper genius over here. Like this person like clearly works hard or is like fairly smart. But I didn't feel like I was just like hopelessly outclassed by these people. And so that definitely like kind of fanned the flames a bit. And then there might be like a big tragedy here, which is I don't really feel like I had that many people around me that raised my ambitions further. And so like maybe there was an amazing thing I could have done or like should have done if I'd been surrounded by that. Maybe if I moved to SF when I was 20 something, I would be doing something way more big and impactful, possibly. So I don't know what to make of that morass of an answer, but there you go. I get a lot of what you're saying and it probably does like you said, like connecting to the people that you're surrounded by, like that affects how you think about where you are, your own level of ambition. And obviously people well past, just like the wealth thing, just like that go well beyond what probably any of us would imagine <laughs> for our lives. I think maybe what I appreciate or what I've gained from you personally is like the kind of ambition that I care about, the kind that has maintains the idea of an independent business with close connections to a group of coworkers or founders that you've developed really good relationships with and not just trying to get on this rocket that shoots you up and leaves everybody else behind. <laughs> that sort of thing. So there's something like that that I appreciate and sort of see as a maybe a model for myself. Do you have any advice for people that are looking for the kinds of people that will point those things out? You know, not just creating competition for competition's sake or creating envy or by the disparity between you and someone else and where they are, but the creating the kind of ambition that is really healthy and matches to the values that you have as a person. I don't know if I have so much specific advice as like maybe general advice 
which is, I guess, would just be like, find your tribe. Make sure that you have people around you that are kind of inspiring and whose like actions you would like to emulate. So like I was already interested in this world, but I do think it was like there was a thing. I may have flipped from being like interested in it to I can do this when I started going to Microconf, a conference for small like software companies, basically. People making money on the internet, not in a huge way. And yeah, I met enough people there and I was like, I want to do what they're doing. This is cool. I'm inspired by these people. It's not so far from me that I feel like I can't do it. And I think that really it made me feel like it was a viable path for me. Did you go there on your own or did you go to speak or did you go before you started Tuple? This is when I was running products at ThoughtBot was the first time I went. I was listening to a podcast called Bootstrap Web, which is still a thing. And they talked about they were hosting a small like skiing getaway for entrepreneur folks. And I asked to go and I got a yes. At the time, I was running products for ThoughtBot. So I like wasn't really... I was entrepreneurial, but I hadn't actually started my own thing really. And I remember them there being like, that's cool that you're doing these businesses or something else, but like, what about your thing? And I was like, yeah, you're right. And they're like, well, you got to go to MicroConf. And I was like, okay, I'll go to MicroConf. And so like, I signed up for MicroConf and like, I just went there as an attendee and was like, oh yeah, these are my people. This is what I want to do. That hammered it home for me. And then I later spoke there, which was the victory lap for me. That's my like new thing with conferences. If, like, I love speaking at conferences. It's great. If I go to a conference and I'm not speaking, I'm like, all right, next year. I need to be so awesome this year that I can speak next year. Do you have a lot of conferences scheduled for 2024? No, I don't think I have any actually right now. I think I'm going to host some things this year. In the past, I've ho- I guess you could call it a conference, but I host like a dozen people or so several times. I think I'm going to do something similar this year. I've actually found that like my most enjoyment seems to be running my own things lately and like really curating the guest list and being a bit smaller. So I'm for sure going to host a few things that are kind of like that this year. Ben, was there anything you wanted to squeeze in there that we didn't talk about? I'd like to encourage your audience to become better friends with people that you like on Twitter. So if you have been following somebody for a while and have had some nice interactions, particularly if like you like they follow you, you follow them and you've had some nice interactions with them, I think you should DM them and give them your phone number and be like, let's do a social call. Take it to the next level somehow. And I think the phone is honestly better than like Zoom because who wants to schedule another Zoom exactly? But if you're like, Hey, this is my number. Like, give me a call. Like, or text me. Or like, can you talk today? I think calling it a social call, like, is kind of like the nice, the right vibe. Like, some sort of like, just we're just chatting. And yeah, I recommend doing this. Build connections, make friends. I'm gonna second that. I've been a little lax on Twitter lately, but I have been doing a lot more just having like coffee chats or whatever with people that I've met on Twitter or met at conferences. But we've never just talked just one on one. And over the past few months, I've done that a bunch of times, and it's been really valuable for me. I feel like I'm developing new friendships, but I've gotten a lot of out of those calls to just the sort of the focus of two people's synchronous communications has been really valuable. So I think that's great. That's how Jeremy and I met. We became friends on Twitter. We reached out, yeah, had a call, just started chatting, met and had dinner with our wives. Nice. Started a podcast. Yeah. 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 It, your life can be forever changed by one person that you meet through the internet. Yeah. And so the expected value of shooting someone a DM, I think, is quite high, quite positive. I never really understood, like maybe five years ago, people would talk about the friends they made on Twitter. And I could never understand that. And I don't know what changed. Something changed in the past couple of years that for me about that. But prior to that, I always felt like I just couldn't figure out how to connect to other people in that sort of personal, meaningful, become friends kind of way. What in your behavior changed? What did you start doing? I think I got more serious about sharing the details of my work on Twitter. That was one thing. Yeah. And I also got more serious about going to conferences. 
and the initial physical contact of seeing people and then the bringing them back to social media, I think helped solidify something. It's hard to put my, to really describe it, but something about that, but it's a, like a marked difference from where it was a few years ago. Just could not understand. Yeah. I think it's worth going first. Be the person that sends the DM, shoot your shot. Yeah. There's a lot of good stuff behind that, like slight discomfort that you might have with that. Well, Ben, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your time today. You've been very gracious with us. I've been a fan of yours since I saw you speak at that Magic Ruby conference way back when. And I know that our listeners are going to get a lot out of hearing your story and hearing your advice and experience on starting a business. Is there anything that you want to leave with us today? You want to send people to your Twitter or Tuple? I'm r 0 on Twitter. You're into that kind of thing. I'm happy to have people reach out. I know you have a lot of Rails devs that maybe are trying to make businesses happen of various kinds. If you think I could be helpful there, feel free to shoot me a DM if you think you want some thoughts or advice. I think one thing that I can do for people is to be real with them. I'm not afraid to tell you if I think your idea needs to change or like this landing page sucks. If you're up to sign up for that sort of bargain of kindness, but honesty and realness, and you would like some of that, feel free to ping me. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Yeah.